The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, Chapter 7 and 8. Chapter 7 and 8, as we discussed in class, are by far the most action-packed chapters of the entire novel. Uh, we talked about this in class where a lot of television shows now are set up where the penultimate episode, the one before the season finale, is where all the action takes place. This book is set up in a very similar way. Chapter 7 starts off with the outward appearance of the house truly mirroring Gatsby's internal self. He's always had this great facade externally of being this idea of perfection. This perfection that he has created himself based off of a number of influences we're going to touch base on here in a second. But I want us to remember and think about this concept that the house itself in chapter 7 is now basically dead. The servants have been fired or removed. We believe this has to do mainly with rumors being spread, but Wolfsheim is still connected to this somehow, and it's some of his people now working the grounds. It just seems like there's a disconnect here. That the house represents what Gatsby is feeling internally, like what he has done has not worked to the, to the extent that he hoped it would. This all sets a tone for what eventually happens. There's a, a, a lunch at Daisy and Tom Buchanan's where Nick and Jordan and Jay Gatsby are going to attend, which sounds like a terrible idea. But you have to remember at this point in time, this is a move to sort of kind of bring this friend group together. And if Gatsby is going to be someone that the Buchanan's, particularly Daisy, is going to be spending time with, it would make sense that they would all potentially socialize outside of Gatsby's big parties. We get a rare appearance in chapter seven of Daisy's daughter and Tom's daughter, obviously Pammy. And it's interesting to note, yes, she's with a nanny, but in many ways, this scene parallels, in my opinion, at least the situation when Tom buys Myrtle Wilson, the dog. Pammy merely appears sort of as a prop, Daisy's cute with her for a second and then sends her on her way with the nanny. We really never know what Myrtle does with the dog. But at least on this hand, it just doesn't seem like there's a strong connection. It just seems like this entire situation, this daughter that exists between Tom and Daisy, is merely there for show. But there's more to it. There's more to it. But where she falls in sort of the pecking order of their lives is, is something to consider. Once again, in chapter seven, this moment where weather becomes a problem. And as Gatsby has tried to pay his way and buy perfection, the weather itself, once again, is incredibly hot, oppressively hot, which you have to imagine sets the tone for how these characters are going to interact with one another. We get more descriptions of Tom's stupidity him being unsure if the sun is getting hotter or colder, which consistently drives his narrative that Tom wants to be someone who knows things, who's respected for his mind, but just can't seem to put it together. And finally, we get this, these two moments. One where Gatsby and Nick describe Daisy's voice sounding like money. And then ultimately this idea that who Daisy is 
is a lot more complex because who Daisy is is influencing who Gatsby is. And we see this sort of parallel one another as the story goes on, but we need to keep this in mind as we're moving forward here. From a plot standpoint, there's the car switch. Tom decides to drive Gatsby's yellow car with Nick and Jordan. Gatsby drives Tom's vehicle with Daisy. This is important because as the yellow car needs gas, it stops at George Wilson's garage where they fill up and meet a very depressed and upset and even physically sick George Wilson who has realized that his wife is living a life outside of their own. And while there's some allusion to an affair that maybe George is believing that is the case, it's not directly said. <clears throat> so it's important, to, it's important to note that while this is going on, Myrtle Wilson's watching the yellow car, seeing Tom, seeing Jordan, believing Jordan is Daisy. And she is, what we find out later, is locked basically in the, in the attic of the garage because George Wilson has announced that they are moving west. From there, things rapidly fire and go crazy quickly. They arrive in New York. They get a room. They sit down. It's a million degrees in there. There's discussion of the past. There's discussion of the the present state of things. One sort of side note to bring up is the fact that no one is actually from New York. Most of them are Southerners. And if we consider Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky, part of the South, there's this element of outsiderness that is present as we talk about this text. That New York has been this playground for these people, but there's no physical connection to the actual place. It's just this vessel for which these actions take place. And what we need to make of that or think about that, I'm not sure. But I think it's something to be considered as we read this text, as we analyze who these characters are and the decisions they make. No one being actually from New York, how does it influence the way they interact with each other, interact with the setting itself? At this point, we get this scene where Daisy talks about Gatsby looking cool. And it kind of clicks with Tom finally that there's something going on, whether it's physical or not, he doesn't know, but there seems to be an attraction and possibly an emotional affair taking place. Tom goes on and on and on about this, the sanctity of marriage. Now, if we're going to throw marriage out, we'll throw anything out and maybe we'll even have interracial marriage soon, right? So Tom's racism comes to the forefront when he's mad. He lashes out in the most ugly way possible, possible. So as that's going on, as we think about it, Tom's sort of stupidity coming to the forefront again, racism being the cherry on top for his ugly disposition, we have to remember that Tom also has had all these affairs. And it's referenced in this scene that his affairs were so bad in Chicago, that's why they left Chicago. And we finally get the showdown between Tom and Gatsby. 100% verbal. 
no physical altercation. And Daisy's at the centerpiece of it. Gatsby saying that Daisy's never loved Tom. Daisy sort of going with Gatsby for a while before finally admitting that she's loved both of them. This really intense scene between the two of them, Nick and Jordan try to leave. That's not happening. And this thing never becomes physical, which is, I think, an interesting sort of side note for Tom Buchanan, who's supposed to be this physical athlete described as a brute. At no point does it become even remotely physical. It doesn't seem to be driven in that way. There's a confidence in Tom that we see here because he's the one who's married Daisy. And while we've never seen them completely together, there seems to be a confidence that what they have is actually real and the way it's been presented to us, whether we can't trust exactly how Nick has presented the material, but we may, as readers, have probably gotten sucked into the way Gatsby has seen their relationship. And and, And Daisy, in this moment, while Gatsby's trying to get her to admit she never loved Tom, and she does for a second, she backtracks, we sort of see that Daisy, in many ways, it's not just that she's weak. She's unable to sort of stand on her own. She always has to rely on something or someone else. While Nick is watching this, and this is Nick's retelling of this, Nick has this moment when he remembers it's his birthday, which seems so random in this moment, but speaks a lot to Nick's character. Nick has been so wrapped up with other people's drama, other people's issues, that he wouldn't remember it's his own birthday till well later into the day. You have to consider that. Everything going on for Nick Carraway to not remember his own birthday says a lot how encompassing this entire situation has become. How he has lost himself in this world. A world which he is still vaguely and only sort of in a very small way participating. This is, there's an entertainment value to it. And while he starts off chapter 8 talking about the events in a different way. It's important to understand that Nick Carraway has been completely submerged into the life and lives of people that truly aren't even his own. His interaction with them only moves the story along to the point where he can't remember his own birthday. Chapter 7 ends with the twist that would complete this chapter in a way if it was written as a short story the book could end right there the yellow car that was driven by tom is now being driven home by jay gatsby and daisy as readers we find out later the car was being driven by daisy remember myrtle wilson had seen this car earlier in the day being driven by tom so she escapes from the garage she runs out in the road to try to wave down the yellow car as the yellow car is passing another vehicle speeding, it strikes Myrtle Wilson and killing her, and Daisy Buchanan driving the yellow vehicle continues on. It's Myrtle who dies believing that it's Tom Buchanan who hit her with the vehicle. And while it was Daisy, the yellow car will, of course, be drawn back 
to Jay Gatsby. The conclusion of the chapter is even weirder. Gatsby is at the Buchanan's house. He's hiding in the bushes. Nick shows up, obviously, with to get dropped off. He's waiting on a taxi, and they have this very odd interaction. Ultimately, Nick goes and sees what Tom and Daisy are doing, and they're having a dinner while they're not eating, and there's a lot of sadness between the two of them. In many ways, it seems like their relationship is rekindling, like this entire blow-up with Gatsby has only made them feel the love between them or has created a space for it to be discussed again. And while we aren't really to know what to make of this scene as far as Gatsby sort of reconnecting or reigniting the love between Daisy and Tom, all we know is that Jay Gatsby's not going to win Daisy and not win her back. And Carraway describes Gatsby at the end of chapter 7 looking at nothing. And then the chapter concludes. When we enter chapter 8, Carraway describes everything that's occurred as a grotesque reality and then links that with the phrase savage and frightening dreams. I think that phrase there is important because while the reality with these people and the, the behavior of these people in general has been over the top, the dreams of Gatsby at this point have rendered themselves nothing more than dreams, but has lent, it, lent itself to some savage and frightening behavior. We have to ask ourselves, does Daisy represent a way of life? Because as Gatsby opens up to Nick in chapter 8, we finally get to see the whole picture. Sure, Dan Cody was important in the creation of Jay Gatsby, moving from James Gats to Jay Gatsby, but it was Daisy, him meeting Daisy, seeing her wealth, seeing what she represented. In many ways, Daisy represented a way of life. And what does Jay Gatsby do? He builds his image of himself, this guy who he's going to be, to check the boxes for Daisy. So Daisy says she loves Jay Gatsby, but she loves this person that he created 100% to fit the mold of her life and her lifestyle. And while he's successful at war, because remember, we get this whole multi-layer character of Jay Gatsby. In many ways, his failure in this attempt to win Daisy in this completely odd obsession. As a soldier in World War I, he was very successful. And while he's not allowed back in time, he's writing these letters trying to get back to Daisy, but life isn't going to wait. It's mentioned that Daisy goes on dates and starts dating other people and is living her life. And on page 151, it's mentioned that she needed her life shaped by a force. And it's not herself. It's that, that the driving force, the thing that's going to shape her life is, her not, is it's not her. It's not her wills. It's not her wants. It's not her ambition or dreams. It's by something else. And Tom Buchanan was that force. Whether you want to call it love or not, or money, or the connection of 
both. She won't wait for Gatsby anymore. And remember, the guy she's waiting for is not who he says he is. The person that she actually wants from a financial standpoint, maybe from a physical standpoint, even maybe from a romantic standpoint, is actually Tom. Jay Gatsby has fallen short because she is, he has sold her lies. He couldn't provide for her. Had he got back from World War I, he goes to Louisville, Kentucky with no money and just wanders the streets figuring out what to do next. Had she dumped Tom at the altar and gone to Jay Gatsby, she would have been left with nothing. Jay Gatsby is built on a house of lies. In that final conversation between Nick and Gatsby, which is so important on page 154, Nick Carraway is very proud of himself that he says that there's this quote basically saying that you're worth more than the group itself. But he follows that quote saying, I disapproved of him from beginning to end. This speaks back to the beginning of chapter one with that opening passage about whether or not you can judge somebody. But while Nick feels good about his final statement, giving a compliment to Gatsby about basically being worth more than the group itself. But that line about being uh, disapproved of Gatsby from beginning to end, that he disapproved of him. It's a really important statement. Because what is Nick Carraway disapproving of? What is it? Is it the creation of the character? Is it the attempt to steal Daisy away? Is it the interaction with Tom? Is it the way he's made his money? Is it the overtop parties? What is it? What is, if we're going to be judging Jay Gatsby, in this moment Nick saying that he always disapproved of him, what exactly is it? The shift here goes back to George Wilson and we get some God and religion and the eyes of the billboard staring down. George Wilson at this point is a broken man. And it only makes sense that Wilson's going to want revenge. I mean, at some point between leaving his garage and making his way to Gatsby's house, he realized that the yellow car belonged to Gatsby. It's not by accident that Jay Gatsby is shot, falling into his pool for the first time amongst the dead leaves as we approach the end of summer. A pool that was never used and only used for the first time to catch Jay Gatsby's body. Wilson then commits suicide and kills himself on Gatsby's lawn. And chapter 8 ends with two deaths and Nick Carraway and what was left of the help at Gatsby's house being present at the scene of the murders, murder and the suicide. Chapters seven and eight, a lot to consider. And I'm sure I'm not doing it enough justice. But as we go and break down each character, it's really important to think about 
this idea of the great Gatsby, the title of the book. Because it speaks to something that seems more disingenuous. I don't think Nick Carraway needs to be looked at as a hero in this chapter either, or this section either. But he is the eyes for which we see what occurs. And his vision of, of everything needs to be taken into consideration. One of the biggest parts of this section we need to remember, particularly when we go back to chapter 7 and look at the argument between Tom and Gatsby, is that at first Gatsby is fine with Daisy leading the charge at Tom, but when Gatsby takes hold and starts saying that she never loved him, and this image that he's trying to present, this vision that he's had for so long that isn't based in reality. We got to ask ourselves for this entire section, chapter seven and eight, where are the dreams and the visions and the illusions? Where do they fit what is actually happening, the, the actual reality of the situations that we find ourselves in? Because at the end, in these two chapters, we have three deaths, which are absolutely real. There's no dream part of it. George Wilson believing that Gatsby was the one who was having the affair with Myrtle Wilson was wrong. But the level of misinformation is limited. Gatsby was part of this. Whether or not you believe Gatsby had his, his death was fitting or deserved is up for you as the reader to decide. We're going to continue to break down these two chapters Chapter 9 wraps the text up, but it goes back and we need to review 7 and 8 after reading 9 to try to make sense of not just the novel as a whole, but how 7 and 8 are represented in the context of the development of all these characters. The action being one thing, but their thought process and their view and perception of what was reality is very important to analyze. Let's continue to... Stay on top of this. I hope you're enjoying the book. We'll pick this up next week.